What is the purpose of the stories in the Bible? If someone does something that seems a bit odd, like Gideon setting out a fleece to determine God's will, or the children of Israel walking around the walls of Jericho to conquer it, does that mean I should do similar things to please God? Hi, I'm Yvonne Prand from Bible 805, and today we're going to answer these questions and more in our lesson entitled, How to Correctly Understand and Apply Bible Stories and Biblical Narratives. As we start reading the book of Joshua in our reading through the Bible this year, we move from the foundation of laws into stories, which are also called narratives. Let's face it, it is a bit of a relief to be finished with the foundation of laws and into the stories of the Bible. For the next few months, you'll be reading some of the most familiar stories from the Old Testament about the walls of Jericho falling down, of Gideon setting out a fleece, of Samson and Delilah, about David and Goliath, and the other exploits of David's life. Though interesting reading, these books pose a major challenge, and that is, how do we properly apply them? The laws are easy. God says, don't lie. (laughs) I know I'm not supposed to lie. The stories are harder. Because a biblical character acted in a certain way, and that seemed to turn out well, should I act in the same way? For example, in the story of Gideon, he asked God for a sign that that confirmed what he was supposed to do. He sat on a fleece, it was an animal skin, and asked that the next morning the fleece be wet and the ground dry. God graciously and miraculously answered him and did that. Gideon then asked for the reverse, and God again answered. Does that mean we should come up with tests like that to determine God's will? The short answer is no. (laughs) Exactly why it's no, and how to properly learn from and apply the lessons of the stories in the Bible is what I'm going to explain in this lesson. It's important to understand this because, as Romans 15.4 tells us, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And also in 1 Corinthians 10:11 it reminds us now these things happened to them it's referring to the stories in the Old Testament as an example but they were written down for our instruction the bible stories aren't just for our entertainment we're supposed to learn from these Old Testament stories. But it's important that we carefully consider what it is that God intends for us to learn. As with many things concerning the Bible, the answer is not a simple just do this or that, but I think the following guidelines will be useful. Now to help us do that, much of what I share with you comes from the book How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. What follows will rely extensively on the book and I will intertwine my comments and added teaching with what this book talks about. Now forgive me, I may not always be clear on what comes from what, I, but I want very much to give credit where credit is due that much of what follows is from the book. And I'll try to clarify, but if I don't attribute it to them and their excellent teaching, and I do recommend that if you get a chance that you read the book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. 
The book focuses on a study of genre in its analysis of the Bible. It's understood to be sort of an expert in this area. Now, to understand why they think that's so important, let's begin by defining the term genre, if you're not familiar with it. From Webster's Online Dictionary, it's defined in this way. Genre means a type of art, literature, or music characterized by a specific form, content, and style. For example, literature has four main genres, poetry, drama, fiction, and nonfiction. There are various genres or types of literature to break it down a little further in the Bible. The genres in the Bible include narrative, also known as stories, poetry, prophecy, history, letters, didactic, and apocalyptic literature. Now don't worry about the definitions of each of them for now. What is important as we begin is that we must identify each one correctly for what it is and then read and apply it with interpretive and application guidelines that apply to that particular genre. Now why we need to do this? You don't read and interpret a poem, for example, in the same way you do a historical narrative. You don't read prophetical, allegory-filled text in the same way you read the Old Testament laws. The interpretation of Daniel's vision of a giant statue is very different from our interpretation of the command thou shalt not kill. One has all kinds of possibilities and nuances and many, many different commentaries on it, and the other one's fairly clear. These may be obvious examples, but precisely how to read each genre with valid interpretation and correct application isn't always simple. On Bible 805, I'll talk about the various genres in the Bible as we encounter them in our reading. But also important is that understanding the genre you're reading is more than an intellectual exercise. The Bible is from a God who loves us and who has given us his word to tell us about himself and how he wants us to live. It's vital for our growing relationship with him that we understand correctly what he's saying to us. On the one hand, you don't want to be disappointed with God by thinking he's teaching or promising one thing when his true message is far from it. And you don't want God disappointed with you because you aren't taking the time to understand what he truly wants to tell you. With these preliminary comments in mind, let's now get specific on the genre we are talking about today, which is story or narrative. This is the largest genre category in the Bible. More of the Bible is made up of either stories or narratives than any other type in the Bible. The two words, narrative story, story narrative, the words mean the same thing and are used interchangeably in commentaries and also in what I'll be teaching you. I use the word story in the introduction because that's what most of us are familiar with. But narrative is the term preferred in many commentaries because story sometimes implies something that isn't true. But that's not the case in the Bible. Keep in mind, a story in the Bible is always a true account of what happens. When we talk about this genre, about narratives and stories in reference to the Bible, we aren't talking about a made-up story. Gordon and Fee put it this way, The biblical narratives thus tell the ultimate story, a story that, even though complex, is altogether true and crucially important.
my comment here. We also need to keep in mind, this is really important, that Bible stories are a true account of what happened, what people truly did. That doesn't mean their actions are a good thing or that we should necessarily follow them, but they were recorded truthfully. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat human history. There are many horrible, wrong, sinful actions recorded in the Bible, as well as many good and godly actions. We need to discern what God wants us to learn from both good and bad actions, and I pray that these Bible 805 lessons will help you do that. Here is some more of why it's so important to understand the Bible narratives, the Bible stories. We are known through our stories. When I've taught writing classes in the past to aspiring journalists and people wanting to write for their church, when they were preparing to interview someone for a story that they were going to write about that person, I would always tell my students, yes, do your preparation, do your background work, have specific questions, but also, and a lot of times I've done this when I've been going to write an interview with someone, start out by just simply saying, tell me your story. If you do that, amazing things always happen. When we first get to know anyone, we naturally share our story. How did you meet your partner? What got you into the kind of work that you do? How did your family treat you when you were growing up? In the Christian world, we often ask, how did you come to know Jesus? Those answers tell us much more than the basic facts. We are made in God's image. And when he tells us a story and his reaction to it, we understand far more about him and what he wants in our what he wants our relationship to be and how he'll treat us much more than if he only gave us commands. Just think how poor our Bibles would be if we just had the lists of the laws, do this, do that, do this, do that, and didn't have all of the wonderful stories that he shares with us to see how these things work out. With the previous thoughts in mind, there are three important overall guidelines for interpreting the narratives, and these come from how to read the Bible for all it's worth, and then I have some of my little comments interspersed with them. Number one, Old Testament narratives are not just stories about people who lived in Old Testament times. They are first and foremost, listen to this, stories about what God did to and through those people. For example, in the story of, the, of Ruth, it is about her. But the key lessons from the book are not primarily about how to be kind to an elderly mother-in-law or how gleaning where they uh, left stuff for people to pick up in the fields, how that worked in the Old Testament, though we learn about these topics from the book. The key lessons in the book of Ruth are about God's care in the midst of troubled times and ultimately about the formation of the line of David and Jesus. Number two. Old Testament narratives do not necessarily teach directly. They often illustrate what is taught directly and categorically elsewhere. Again, very, very important for you to understand. You are expected to know the explicit teaching behind the example. Only then will the narrative make sense. This is immediately important in what we're going to be reading now as we go through the Bible. For example, the book of Judges doesn't repeat the commands of Deuteronomy. It shows what happens when the commands are not obeyed. 
for the stories of the prophets to make sense as we get further on in the Old Testament readings, you must go back to both the direct commands God gave in the books that we just finished, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and not only that, but the promises that people made to obey God. God gave them all these commands. The people said, yes, we will do that. God also said, if you don't, this is what will happen. Things were extremely clearly spelled out. These books establish the importance of their failures and the right of God's judgment. The later historical books will assume you understand and remember these things. Review the laws and the covenant made between God and his people so that these books will make sense to you. Number three, narratives record what happened, not necessarily what should have happened. What people do in narratives is not necessarily a good example. Frequently, it's just the opposite. For example, Israel was commanded to destroy the Canaanites. God had granted them, the Canaanites, over 400 years of mercy, but they didn't repent. They were ordered destroyed because, and it's important to understand the history to go back, after the flood, their ancestors had the same knowledge of God as did the other sons of Noah. They could have continued to follow God, but they didn't. Instead, they chose the path of gross immorality, of idol worship culminating in sexual perversions as part of their, of their worship, and worst of all, they sacrificed their children to Moloch. That was where they burned their children alive. It was a horrible thing. And God says, this is an abomination. This is wrong. You're never supposed to do that. This is what the people did. And what's really sad, not only were there blatant sins a problem, but when Israel didn't destroy them, these people who practiced all these things became the oppressors and tempters to the people of Israel. The constant wars that are recorded from the book of Judges and on through the entire rest of the Old Testament did not have to happen. This is so important. If they would have taken care of the situation, of the sins, of fully destroying the people. And even though that seems horrible to us, and it was horrible that it had to happen, because they didn't do that, not only were God's people tempted to participate in sin in involvement with the Canaanites' worship of other gods, but ultimately... One of the consequences was wives from these nations caused the downfall of Solomon, the greatest king of Israel and the wisest man who ever lived. But he really made a big mistake in marrying these women who practiced these very pagan religions. In judgment for his actions, God split the kingdom and hundreds of years of grief and sadness and judgment and all sorts of really dreadful things happened. To emphasize, God's recording of these events doesn't mean his blessing on any of them. As we go on, here's some more advice from Gordon and Fee, where they say, We are not always told at the end of a narrative whether what happened was good or bad. We are expected to be able to judge this on the basis of what God has taught us directly and categorically elsewhere in Scripture. Again, he expects us to read the whole thing. 
All narratives are selective and incomplete. Not all of the relevant details are always given, and this is a pattern throughout the Bible as the New Testament reminds us when it says in John 28:30, and truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. What does appear in the narrative is everything the inspired author and, we should say, behind the inspired author, God, thought is important for us to know. Narratives are not written to answer all our theological questions or the human things that we wonder about. I just wonder why we don't know more of what happened in the 40 years when they were wandering in the desert. I mean, that's kind of a big stretch of time, and I think would have been interesting to find out a little bit more there, but God does not tell us. Beyond the details of the stories, Gordon and Fee also distinguish three levels of the story of the Bible, and these are also important for us to keep in mind as we read. Number one, the top level, and the most important thing to always keep in mind, and that is the whole universal plan of God worked out through his creation and the ultimate redemption of heaven and earth and humanity. The middle level centers on Israel, the big picture, the call of Abraham, forming a people, their bondage, deliverance, taking the land, destruction, and restoration. They're talking primarily about the Old Testament, and I would say in the New Testament, the middle level concerns the church. And then finally, the bottom level are the individual stories. All biblical characters had imperfections, but they were still used by God. And most of the stories operate on all three levels, and you always need to keep the upper levels in mind as you read about individuals. Individual stories aren't simply told as ancient biographies. The Old Testament isn't only an early source document for Josephus and other historians at the time. God is telling his story through these individual stories that make up part of his overall plan of redemption. The individual stories, to emphasize, are only important in how they illustrate the larger story because, as Gordon and Fee tell us, in the final analysis, this is super important, God is the hero of all biblical stories, all narratives at all levels. Because every individual is part of the bigger story, God's story of redemption, and you must keep in mind the context, the big picture of that particular part of the story for it to make sense. For example, again we'll soon be reading Judges, arguably one of the most depressing books in the Bible. In it, the individual stories of just two of two of the characters in there, of Gideon and Samson, they are not the heroes of their stories. God is a hero in how he used and empowered them. When we understand that God is the true hero of all biblical stories, it not only helps us put him in his proper place, but it puts biblical characters in a realistic place. And this is super important because 
I think there's a temptation, especially in teaching little kids and stuff, to make the biblical characters bigger heroes than the Bible makes them to be. Samson was not someone you wanted to emulate. And sometimes he's presented as this great hero. And he was he was really a pretty bad guy in a lot of his choices. But in the end, he ultimately trusted God and God used him. But God is the hero of that story, not Samson. All of them made mistakes as we do. We don't work to emulate them, but to learn about the God who gives grace to all of us, no matter how many mistakes we make. We might ask then, given all of the above, why is it that people don't read the context? Or why put people rather than God as the heroes of the story? Why do people make mistakes in their interpretation when they read biblical stories? Well, here are some of the reasons Gordon and Fee suggest. First of all, people are desperate. Desperate for information that will help them in their situation. Second, they're impatient. They want answers now from this book, this passage. They do these things, third, because they wrongly expect, listen to this closely, that everything in the Bible applies to them individually. Now, these actions are incorrect because though the entire Bible was written for our instruction, not every passage is specifically to or for us. It is in the sense that we're to learn from it, but we can't just grab things and run with them. Not only are these mistakes not the correct way to read the Bible, but as I mentioned earlier, they can lead to disappointment with God because in reading out of context or from desperation, people think that God promises something that he did not promise to them, and then they get disappointed if he doesn't do it. Please see the previous lesson in the podcast and on the website. It's number 82, How to Avoid Disappointment with God. I give you a very detailed discussion of this danger and how to avoid it. But moving along on this lesson. One example, this has been used many times before, but people keep making the same mistake, and so I'm going to repeat it. And an example of a rushed and out-of-context reading and claiming a verse incorrectly is Jeremiah 29.11. It's used again and again as an example of bad application of pulling something out of context, sadly by really desperate people. First, I'll tell you what the verse says, and then we'll discuss it in more detail. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. People grab it. They share it all the time as a promise that whatever their specific situation is, God will make it better because God wants them to be happy and prosperous, and preferably very quickly. Now, Can we do that? Can we grab onto the promise that God will make it all better? We need to be careful as we answer because the answer isn't just a categorical no, you're grabbing it out of context. Let's apply what we've learned so far for a correct answer. Now first let's look at the context, the historical setting of Jeremiah 29.11. The narrative, the setting of the story is that this verse is part of a letter Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in Babylon. It is part of a narrative passage about how to live during the exile. He told them that God, again the hero, the true main character of the story, was still with them, still had a plan for them. 
Even though as a nation they had sinned horribly and suffered the ultimate punishment of being removed from their land, he told them to settle in, to seek the welfare of Babylon, to trust and serve God even under judgment. Finally, he reminded them that God also promised that after 70 years, he would also bring them back into the land. That is the future and hope the verse refers to. Now, as far as personally claiming this promise, what what can we do? What's valid? What isn't? Now, first of all, unless you want to take 70 years for a promise to be fulfilled, the specifics of this passage may not be something you want to claim. But don't stop there and give up on God giving you a good hope and future. Look at the bigger picture of who God is in this passage and the rest of the Bible. Again, in this and other passages, what do you learn about the character of God and how he treats people? That is what you can legitimately hold on to. So let's look at it in this way. The larger biblical setting of Jeremiah 29.11. If we continue to read all the Bible stories in the Old and New Testament, what do we see in how God deals with his people who continuously sin, and even when they are under judgment for their sin, as they were in Babylon when this promise was given to them? How does God deal with them? God never gives up but deals with them in continuing love and grace. Though Israel sinned greatly, they made it into the promised land. Though in Judges they constantly sinned, God continued to provide deliverance. Throughout the Old Testament, God continued to raise up prophets. Their job was to call people back to God. The prophets were ignored, killed, and the people were punished. But God took care of them in every circumstance, even during the exile in Babylon, which again is the context of this verse, and brought them back into the land where eventually the Savior would be born. And more, in the Psalms and in the New Testament, what does it say about the hope and future God gives us all? In Psalm 37:23, it says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, and we all do, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. In the New Testament, Jesus told his followers that the hairs of their head were numbered, that they were of far more value than many sparrows who God effortlessly cares for, and that God would care for them in the same way. We are promised peace on earth and in the future heaven and an eternity without sickness or fears. We do have a good future and a hope promised in the Bible because of the overall story of how God treats his people. But in waiting for that to be fulfilled, what can we learn from reading all the Bible and not just grabbing one verse? Here are some suggestions. Number one, we may need to endure consequences before ultimate blessings. The Jews were in Babylon for 70 years. Your challenge, pain, hurt, need, whatever it is, it might last a long time. Two, though our ultimate goal and good is guaranteed, the timing is not. That is always the critical issue. And the timing will always, almost always, take longer for fulfillment of our hope than we want it to. 
Also, we need to be realistic. The, the fulfillment of your future and hope may not come on this earth. And five, that God's love and care for us is guaranteed throughout all that we face, throughout everything, through the trials, the temptations, and even once it's fulfilled. So, what to do with what you know about how God works and how to study and learn from the narratives? Keep reading and studying and listening to God's Word and the lessons on it. If you want your faith and life to make sense, you must keep working on understanding the big picture of the context of the Bible stories. Keep reading the upcoming stories, the narratives, not for what you can claim from them, not only what will work for you, but to learn how God works, thinks, what matters to Him. Remember, God is the hero of all Bible stories. Get to know your God better, to grow in your trust and love for Him. Your joy and peace right now will grow also as you do this. Because you have God's written word, don't be asking for a sign or a fleece to make decisions. People sometimes ask for God's will in a particular situation, but often the answer is in applying what you already know. Speak the truth in love. Don't let anger control you. Do justly. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. Study God's clearly revealed will in the Bible. He's very plain about most of the issues we face. When faced with a truly difficult situation, remember in James 1, it tells us that when we face trials, we need to ask for God's wisdom, not for a way out, but for wisdom, for what to learn from hard times, how to bring honor to the Lord in the story he may be telling in your life. And finally, Don't be a whiny child that complains because you think you should be treated like the father treated some other child. That's always a temptation. Be a child who knows you are loved by a good God and trust him. Be assured that the story you are in is much bigger than what you can see and that God has it all under control. Know you can trust the author of all the stories of those of us who love him and that he will one day tie up every loose plot line, resolve all conflicts, and bring our story to a conclusion where in truth we will live happily ever after. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson and many other resources at www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word, and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.